0: Uh, In order to get better at my craft, I'm always listening to uh, different things about preaching and reading about preaching. I heard recently stated by a great, now late, preacher uh, that preaching is the art of speaking skillfully while someone else sleeps. (laughs) Would that not be the case today? Uh, When we get into the truth of scripture, that would be a truly lamentable Thing, that, one, somebody could speak in such a way to make it so boring, and two, that we would not be attuned to hear the word of the Lord today. So let's begin by prayer. Just quiet your heart for a moment as we begin. God, may we receive your word today with open hearts to be encouraged be drawn into your presence, become more like your son, Jesus Christ, to be holy as you are holy. We pray this in your name, amen. There's a classic um, office game that probably many of you have played, uh, which basically asks, it's a get to know you game where they ask if you were on a deserted island, what three books would you want to take with you? Many of you have probably played this game, but I don't know if you've ever noticed the twist in Christian circles when you play that game. If you were on a desert island and you only had three books to take with you, what would they be? Of course, one of them would be the Bible. So then what they do is they add a book basically, because of course we all assume that we take the Bible with us so you can have three books with you besides the Bible. Now, before you start thinking about what three books you're gonna take, you can do that after the service and talk to somebody about it while you drink coffee, that's fine. But but we often make a lot of assumptions on, on personal piety, on our sense of godliness. It's, it's easy to do that, to assume uh, somebody's godliness or our own sense of piety or goodness. It gets assumed in the culture around us that we're all basically good and, and, and we're probably just good enough. And we want to believe. We want to believe that we are good enough, that we are godly enough, that we're right enough with God, And we want to look faithful. I, I mean, I, I, I'd like to. I'd like to be faithful, and I'd like to look it, too. We want to look faithful, but are we? Am I? It's a good question to ask, not just assuming it, but to really dig into, am I faithful? Today, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 31, 1 through 13. And this, it, it gets heavy because it's the very end of Saul's life. So I'm, I'm going to encourage you to find that, 1 Samuel 31. You can do it in your Bible. It's on Version on your phone, either one. And Saul, he's had, he had a good start, but had a world of problems, mostly self-inflicted. Um, and now he, he meets this end, and it gets difficult at this point. So let's just read all 13 verses. So we're in the world here of Saul. It says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malki, Shua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. This was not an unheard of. This was in fact quite common in the ancient world. If you were a warring king coming in and you captured the other king alive, you certainly would humiliate them. That's what they did to one another and torture was often involved. So he's not making this up. This is probably reality. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent his messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols, among the people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtaroths and fastened his body to the wall at Bethshan. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard that the, what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall at Bethshan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh. And they fasted seven days. There are two accounts, by the way, of Saul's death. If you go to uh, 1 Samuel, you'll see the next one. Uh, Probably the second one has some lies in it, not the scripture itself, but the Amalekite that comes is probably lying about what happened. This is probably what happened. What we're reading is how Saul met his end. And you can see that... Uh, What's happened, and we heard from 1 Samuel 28 this morning where Saul tries to consult a medium, the witch at Endor, a very odd story, but Saul has been, essentially God's presence has left Saul by this point. God said as much. I'm I'm lifting my presence from Saul. An evil spirit tormented him. Saul had no direction, no power, no nothing. He tries to to scrape together whatever he can, but by this point, he's just in so deep in disobedience and turning away from God, and God has turned away from him. And he's against the Philistines, the rival power, who now has the upper hand. They've got him cornered, and they critically wound Saul. And we can see that his armor-bearer is called upon To do what armor bearers would be called on to do in those cases. Kill me, he says. I'm critically wounded. I'm not getting out of this. And it's only going to get worse if I don't just go now. And his armor bearer is terrified. As probably many of us would be in that case. Who would want to do that? We don't know why his armor bearer is terrified. We don't know if his armor bearer didn't want to kill him because of the same reason David didn't. That it's the Lord's anointed. And you wouldn't put a hand against the Lord's anointed. We don't know. We just know the armor bearer was terrified, didn't do it. And then we have two of the people in scripture here who kill themselves right in front of us. And we're not going to talk about that deeply, but, but the very fact of the matter is that we have two suicides here. And this is an, uh, a topic that I think if we don't say something about it now, that would be negligent on my part. I, I want to point out that, that we live in a day where, It was not at that point in time, by the way, nobody considered suicide an honorable way. Nobody considered it honorable to take your own life. And in this day and age where we have 13 reasons why popping up and gaining great popularity on Netflix, a show about a girl committing suicide and leaving these messages... We're reminded that, that people have done this at times. Saul doesn't do it here for this reason, but people have done this at times to communicate. It's a poor way to communicate. Everything we do communicates. My hands are communicating to you. But there are good ways to communicate. That's a poor way to communicate. And we live in a time where over the last couple decades, the idea that somebody could take their own has become an option. I mean, it's been, been uh, reduced to, to uh, the basic things that somebody could do with their weekend. Go play mini golf, or you could go kill yourself if things are that bad. It's been reduced to an option, and people will take the option. I'm not trying to make it trite, but I, I want us to recognize that, that we're dealing with something that's very heavy and very uh, difficult right now. And I don't want to just pass by. I, I want to get to more of the text in a moment. But I, I want to say this, because some people have fleeting thoughts I think almost anybody has a thought, what if? But for some of us, it goes deeper. It goes further, and we have darker thoughts of maybe it would be better if. Or we know people who are in, swimming in that. Maybe it would be better if. And suicide has affected a number of us in the congregation. I know it's even affected my own family throughout the years. It's a short-sighted decision it leaves a giant hole for those who are left behind, a, a path of devastation, a lot of what ifs and whys. And so this morning, I don't just want to gloss over this, I'm gonna move in, in just a moment, but I want us to recognize that if if you're in one of those moments sitting in the room where you're struggling with your purpose and your value in life, let us recognise first of all God's given you those things by creating you and sending his son to die for you. And if you're at a dark moment, talk to somebody and get perspective. Bring in help and people who can, who can rally around you. And if you are one of those people who's consulted, boy, do everything in your power to talk to those people and give them perspective and get them the help that they need, it always leaves a path of destruction. Amen. And you can see that it does, thank you, you can see that it does with Saul too. I mean, look at what it does. His men die. His squire kills himself. His family ends up suffering for all of his disobedience that ends up in this. It's not victimless at all. It leaves them in, in such a quandary as well. It always does. It's a little surprising in the case of Saul then that he gets a little bit of honor in the end, likely because he's Israel's king and he's been desecrated. That's likely why he's getting this. These people come in, they take him back, his body back so it won't be mutilated and uh, and they won't be embarrassed anymore by their king's body and they end up taking the worst of circumstances and doing the best they can with it. They burn his body, not the way that you do things in that world. You bury the body, you don't burn the body. And they do that so that they can save him and his uh, memory and Israel, really, from any more humiliation. It's the worst of all circumstances that we're encountering here. Saul, as we look at this, did a lot of earthly, positive things in his life, actually you go back to 1 Samuel 14 you can read a few of the things that he did he did some positive things for Israel he conquered he was victorious in battle and many occasions and that looked good enough to him and we live in a culture where that sometimes looks good enough we're told that's good enough just do good things and that will be good enough play the part of a good person you'll be you'll be fine but we, we read, if we read First Chronicles 10, 13, and 14, we get another account of Saul and why he died. It says, Saul died, not because he was unfaithful to the Lord. Because he, excuse me, because he was unfaithful to the Lord. Let's get this right. That's the first reason. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium. We heard that this morning for guidance. And he did not inquire of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, son of Jesse. If we narrow that down to what Saul did, we can can actually just get two things that we've seen through and through as we've studied uh, Saul over these past weeks. It's pride and it's disobedience. Those are the things that keep affecting Saul. Pride, the self-glorification, heaping praise that belongs to somebody else, whether it's God or someone else, on himself. Taking it in as if it's his own, as if he owns it himself. And the path of pride is disobedience. Oh, God says this, but actually I know better. This is the way to go. Pride and disobedience. And we discover, literally in Saul's case, pride kills and disobedience brings death. And that's where we are in this whole story. Saul, he lives for himself, but he looks like he lives for God at times. He tries to cloud it over. He tries to make excuses when it looks like he's not being faithful and obedient. And his end illustrates the problem of Saul. His end illustrates that he's got this earthly success, he's got this earthly power over a great number of people, but he slips away from God's presence so that by the end he doesn't know or honor God at all. And his choices become dire when it's too late. He realizes how far he's gone when he consults the medium and then he he ends up uh, being caught in battle. And so I think we have to take the warning. We've been looking at Saul, at his character, at the character study. We need to take the warning that Saul's story can happen to us as well if we're not aware of the place of pride and obedience in our own lives. Pride kills. But godly obedience brings life. There's the good news this morning. Godly obedience brings life. Life And the issue of pride is one of idols. It's it's one where we have to ask the question, what captivates my attention more than God or the things of God? That's where we get uh, where the rubber meets the road with pride. What captivates my attention more than God or the things of God? What makes my mind wander away, worry, get anxious, or get angry? What is it that allows a person's eyes to wander to what they ought not see, what they ought not look at, and then justify it when they do? What is it that makes people laugh at the wrong jokes, the insensitive jokes, the things we ought not laugh at, and then say, oh, that's just my personality, I laugh at inappropriate things? What is it that makes our attitude sometimes sour, dire, dark, cold, bitter, grudge holding, and mean? What is it that captivates us in that way? The anti-things of God, what is it that causes me to think I'm right and you're wrong on everything? What is it? Why is it that I could say I believe God is my sufficiency and my savior when all too often I think it's myself? All too often I act as if it's me that's really in control. I've been struck by some of these questions uh, a lot recently, the one, that's, the one way that I've seen this evidenced, I know in my own life over the past uh, six months, I'd say, is as I've been challenged to be more evangelistically minded and get involved in evangelism, I've recognized in myself that I actually, uh, when, I'm, when I'm drawn into these moments where I can take the conversation further with somebody and ask a key question or, or, or just probe a little bit more to get them towards the things of Christ, the Holy Spirit is actually working, but you know what I let rule? Anxiety and fear. I let it stop because of my anxiety and fear, even though the Holy Spirit might be calling me to take it further. Well, that's just my own pride working out. That's just my own disobedience working out that I know better than God. I've been struck by that recently. And somebody could say to me, well, you're just too hard on yourself, perhaps in those cases. And I would suggest maybe I'm not hard enough. Maybe I'm not focused enough on reducing that anxiety and that fear and relying more on the spirit. As as we're in this story, I know this is heavy this morning, so stay with me here and let's not get too weighed down, but but let's dig in here appropriately. As we look at the whole story, because we're looking at the very end of Saul's life, we've got a couple other moments we're gonna look at after this, sort of the after effect of Saul. We're at the end of Saul's life as we're looking at the whole of First Samuel now. Eli, if you remember way back at the beginning, Eli the priest, he ignored. He was trying to be faithful. But he ignored disobedience in his midst. And he's living in a culture where there is no king and everybody does as they saw fit. Eli kind of was rising above that, but he didn't call it for what it was. His own sons were disobedient. And then some. And they all suffer the consequences. Then Samuel rises up through that. The book that is named after the guy. Samuel rises up and he's faithful. He's trying to bring everybody up to obedience in God. And Samuel flags the issue of obedience. And then Saul comes along, someone who should have risen above and brought everybody with him. Samuel flags the issue of disobedience. Saul disobeyed and he was the issue. He pulled everybody down as you can see. By the very end, that's what he's doing. And we don't want to be fooled. We are just as capable as Saul of being prideful and disobedient. And the difficult thing that we see about pride is that pride is exponential. It just grows with time and it grows even faster as it takes hold of us more and more. Small decisions of disobedience lead to bigger disobedience. All the while, we tend to minimize the issue not recognizing the consequences that are coming from our disobedience and pride there's a early Christian work written in about the 100s AD called the Didache and the first line of it uh, it's it's about Christian living basically the first line of it just always gets me and it's it sticks with me uh, because of the truth it says very clearly it was written in the 100s AD there are two ways one of life and one of death. And there's a great difference between the two ways. It sounds so obvious, doesn't it? But essentially it's telling us about the path of obedience versus disobedience. With, with each step of obedience versus disobedience, we're choosing life or death. I mean, that seems pretty lofty, but that's actually the reality of it. If we're choosing God and the things of God, if we're choosing salvation through Jesus Christ versus the other things that are offered promising that, we're choosing life or death is what it's telling us. Pride has a principal place to play uh, and humility the opposite of that in how we're going to make those choices. Uh, Did you guys hear the one about the minister who said he had a wonderful sermon on humility, but he was waiting for a large crowd to preach it? (laughs) It can catch us all. It can catch us all in some pretty odd ways sometimes. Pride versus humility. We can think we're the most humble person out there. We can't say it. And at the minute we're talking about it like this, we've got a problem on our hands. I might look faithful, you might look faithful, but are we faithful? That's what we're confronted with today. Is it, is it real in me? Am I choosing life or death? Am I choosing Christ or the things that are the opposite of that salvation? If we look back at the text at 1 Samuel 13, 4, here's a, a sense of false sort of looking the part even at the end on Saul's part. Because Saul talks to his armor bearer and he says, draw your sword, run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. The Philistines, these uncircumcised fellows. Saul, as we saw a couple weeks ago, his pinnacle point that we read of in 1 Samuel of being obedient was when he went to use the cave to relieve himself. That's the pinnacle moment when he appears to be following the law to the letter. Other than that, he only follows as it's convenient for himself. And now here, he says, I don't want these uncircumcised fellows, these folks who are not God's covenant people to come in and do their work to me. Why, if Saul was acting like these uncircumcised fellows, does he all of a sudden care? At this point, do you recognize that? He's been acting disobediently. He is one of the uncircumcised at this point, functionally. And yet, he's he's looking faithful, but he's not. Furthermore, if you go down in the text, this is no longer Saul talking. Uh, In verse 9, it talks about them coming to strip him of his armor. And it says, the Philistines sent messengers throughout the land to proclaim the news in, uh, in the temple of their idols. That's really what pride is in the end. It's an idol. They sent uh, Saul's body to their idols. The text uses idols specifically to say these are false gods, but that's what pride is too. That's where Saul's faith was the whole time, in idols, things false, non-existent. And why would we knowingly put our faith in something that's false? Obedience is the difference between death and life. And obedience is choosing life. It's choosing the things of God, and that's most appropriately in, uh, seen in, in Jesus Christ. That's only realized in the salvation we get through Jesus Christ and living in to that life. Everything else is an idol. Pride turns out to be a di- an indication of disobedience along the way that we can succumb to if we're not careful and, and the prideful do not obey and, and so they choose in the end the path of death not life. Just last week uh, I was flying I went out to Portland and just south of Portland for a, a retreat and on my way out I had to fly through Los Angeles and then up to Portland uh, added a lot of time to the flight but um, I've only driven through Los Angeles a couple times i would never flown in. I, I don't know if you've flown into Los Angeles uh, but Once you start flying over the city, you're flying over the city for an awfully long time. It's a huge complex of suburbs that just keep going out. And I mean, you fly over these mountains and all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's a little town. Oh no, that's Los Angeles. It just keeps going and going and going and going and going. Now the people behind me in the seat, it was fun to listen to them because they could look down and they were from the area and they're pointing out, oh, that's... That's this highway, and that's this part of town, and that's this part of town as we're flying over. And as we're getting lower and lower, they can say, oh, that's my neighborhood. I didn't know they were building that building there. Boy, that progress went up fast. And they're just having this fun little conversation talking about where they are. But, But it was interesting to consider that this week because that actually is how pride, and perhaps the better word we could use is arrogance, Sometimes we think pride is a really good thing, right? I have pride that I was able to do my math homework or pay my way through college or something like that. Arrogance is really what we're getting at when we say pride. But pride kind of works like flying over like that, where you can look down and you can say, oh, look at all those little people down there, but I can see more than they can. But I know better than they can or they do. And not only that, it flies us at these heights where we kind of think, my judgment is pretty close to the same judgment as God. That's what pride ends up doing to us. That's why it becomes so troublesome and problematic for a faith that's going to choose the life that Jesus Christ offers. That's why it causes Saul so many problems. Disobedience, like Saul's disobedience, chips away slowly, but it works faster the more it takes root in our lives. I can tell you in my own experience when, when the pride and the disobedience have a chance to take root more is when I step away from the essential disciplines of scripture, God's revelation to us of prayer, my response to God's revelation of worship and of fellowship with his people when any of those things is lacking in any way that's when when pride starts to take hold and disobedience can take root. And we feel distant from God. We feel separate from God. And it takes a lot of work then to get back on track with that relationship. And for some, they step off the path and they get so far it seems like it's almost impossible and they just give up. Let's not be those people this morning. Let's hear hope Let's hear life in the things of God. Let's hear these words from 1 Timothy 1, where Paul says, here's a trustworthy trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. When we've stepped away, when pride and disobedience have taken over in us, we always need to take stock to make sure they haven't. But when those have, the simple plan is to turn, to repent. To turn towards the one who actually gives us salvation. Recognizing that we are, in fact, uh, uh, the worst of sinners. If we can't say that about ourselves, then perhaps we have a little pride. We're the worst. God is the one who brings us into his presence. We redirect our energies in the act of repentance, reorient our heart to the things of God, accepting his power in us working in us and through us to bring us into his hope. And the promise of obedience is joy, peace, and life. That's good news this morning, isn't it? That's good news. Ultimately, when you look at the life of Saul, who defeated King Saul? He did. He defeated himself through his own pride and disobedience. Obedience. It says God put him to death. God didn't need to actually actively do anything. Saul was doing it all to himself by giving up on that essential relationship. And he lived out the consequences. Before us, we have that option. There are two ways, just like there were with Saul just like there were with Samuel and David and all the other people we encounter in Scripture just like there are with us. There are two ways, one of life and one of death. There's a great difference between the two ways. This morning, let us hear the call of salvation in Christ and recognize where we are far away, hand ourselves over, that we can experience the fullness of that salvation. Let's pray together. Father, give us life through your Son, Jesus Christ. Don't let us... Try for other means. Don't let us, as Saul did, consult other people who promise to be able to give us what only you can deliver. Our Father, this morning, for those of us who are feeling far away and distant, broken, hurt, lonely, give us faith. Draw us into your presence. Help us remember the experience of what salvation in you is like, of what your Holy Spirit is like in our lives. And for those of us who have never experienced it, God, will you come this morning and touch those lives who have never had that experience of your Spirit working through them? Don't let us be driven by anxiety, fear, anger, anger, Loneliness, distance, hurt, bitterness, grudges. Don't let us make excuses this morning for being out of your presence. Father, draw us into your presence. Give us wholeness, peace this morning, and life. We call on you this morning for that. And we give ourselves into your presence this morning, recognizing that you are the one who gives that joy peace in the life that no one else can promise or give or deliver on. Father, we give ourselves to your care. Amen.